Hey, good morning and welcome to South Valley Community Church. So great to have you joining us wherever you're joining us from, whatever time you're watching. I really hope that video blessed you as much as it blessed me to see um, just a, a little way for us to stay connected even while we're unable to be together in person. My name is Sam Whitaker. I'm one of the pastors here at South Valley. And today we are going to continue in this new series, Encounters Part 3. And in the past, all of our Encounter series have been about people in the New Testament who meet Jesus and are radically transformed by the experience of meeting him. And the kind of twist that we're doing on that with this particular series is that all these stories come from the book of Acts. So it's after Jesus has ascended to heaven and no one's meeting Jesus in person. They're being introduced to him through his followers, through his servants. And the thing that's so cool and inspirational about this for me is that this is the primary method um, by which Jesus has been introduced to people for the last 2,000 years, through his body on earth. So that's what we're going to keep doing. Today, we have less of a positive, kind of exciting story and more of a cautionary tale, but one that I think we all have a lot to learn from. And it starts in Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, starting at verse 4, says, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Now the text talks about how those who were scattered are going about preaching. What happened right before this is the first persecution against Christians in Jerusalem has begun. It's being led by Saul of Tarsus, who's later going to become Paul the Apostle. But for this time in the story, he is an opponent of Christianity. And he has just begun this kind of immediate, brutal persecution in Jerusalem. And it has caused Christians, other than the apostles, to all scatter to the surrounding regions. And so Philip, the same Philip who we heard about last week, although this story actually takes place prior to that one, Philip is one of these people who has been scattered out of Jerusalem against his will. Now, the cool thing about what's happening is he ends up in Samaria. And when he's in Samaria, he starts doing what faithful Christians do. He starts sharing the gospel with signs and power. But the cool thing is that he didn't necessarily want to go to Samaria. He's sent there by this horrible thing that's happening in Jerusalem. But if you go all the way back to Acts chapter 1, before Jesus ascends, one of the things that he tells his followers is, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all of Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so what looks like a horrible, brutal situation that's happening in Jerusalem, Jesus is using to fulfill the promise he made to his followers. Already, even in the midst of persecution, the word is spreading out beyond Jerusalem and Judea and into Samaria. And so just as a side note, it's not what this story is about, but as a side note, in the midst of this difficult, painful, anxiety-inducing thing that we're all experiencing, remember, God is in the business of using hard and difficult situations to work his will. And that's what's happening here. So Philip ends up in Samaria. These people who were kind of half Jewish, half Gentile with a really conflicted, confusing history, They're, they do not get along well with the Jews. And the Jews at this time are 100% of what the Christian church is made up of. So there are no Christians who are Gentiles yet. There are no Christians who are Samaritan. All of them are Jewish. And so this is the story of that starting to change. Philip shows up, begins preaching the gospel with accompanying signs and miracles, and people are seeing incredible things happen. And that's, this is where we meet our kind of main character for this story. 
But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. It's interesting, Luke uses a couple of words twice here. He says twice that Simon, with these great works of magic, amazed them. He's amazed the people of Samaria, and then at the bottom again, he says, for a long time, he had amazed them with his magic. He also uses the word great twice. Simon thinks of himself as someone great, and the people of Samaria pay attention because they also say that he is the power of God that is called great. So what exactly is this guy doing? The text calls him somebody who practices magic. And at this time in history, that's a pretty broad word that basically covers an entire spectrum of activities that are all about performing actions in the physical world that cause spiritual powers to do what you want. So you have something that you want to accomplish and you want aid from the spirit realm, you do a magical activity, whether that's an incantation, wearing a particular amulet around your neck or placing sacred bowls or figurines around your house, pronouncing a curse, whatever it is, you perform a behavior that is supposed to manipulate gods or the spirits into doing what you want them to do. And so again, these, are, these were used to curse people. They were used to bring healing on yourself, to protect you from evil spirits, to bring about any number of outcomes that you want, including telling the future sometimes. And so we have all kinds of records all throughout the first century of people, both Jewish and Gentile, doing this type of thing. And it seems like there was all across the spectrum from charlatans who were just tricksters who could do sleight of hand and mind tricks, all the way to the genuine article who, you know, were working in cahoots with demons or other spiritual powers to accomplish real spiritual things on earth. In fact, later on in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas encounter a Jewish magician named Bar-Jesus. And when they're confronting him, Paul, it says, looks him straight in the eye and calls him son of Satan, enemy of all righteousness. So at least in that story, it seems that there are people out there at this time who are the genuine article. And the kind of witness of church history is that Simon was one of these guys who really could do the things that he was purported to do. Um, There's several early church fathers from the first couple centuries of the church, people like Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, and Jerome, who all testify that this guy, Simon, was the real deal. He, he was famous, not just throughout Samaria, but Justin Martyr actually says he had a statue all the way in Rome. And Justin, we don't know for sure if, if this is true, but he also is a guy who grew up in Samaria, probably near the place where Simon was. And he says, this guy's the real deal. He was working with demons to do magical acts. But here's the core, the core kind of key idea for you to get is magic is about performing actions, doing and saying things to get the results you want from the spiritual world. And Simon appears to be quite good at this. The people in that area, it says he considered himself to be someone great, but the people in Samaria also called him the power of God that is called great. It could also be translated the great power of God. And it's not super clear if this is meant to be like a direct claim of deity that he's saying, I am God or a God, or just that he's claiming to be somebody who has this kind of special connection to God or the gods. But either way, this is a guy who's taking the glory for himself. He's not somebody who's trying to direct the glory off of himself to God, as we see many of the apostles do in the book of Acts. He's somebody who is enjoying the accolades and fame and probably fortune that comes from this great reputation he has. 
But when Philip shows up and these miracles start happening, something incredible happens. Verse 12, but when they, the Samaritans, believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. So many Samaritans believe, come to faith, and begin following Jesus, and even Simon is among them. It says he believed, he's baptized, and he continues on with Philip. And it's not hard to imagine why. This is a guy who, who recognizes power when he sees it, and he starts seeing these great supernatural acts done, and he says, okay, I'm, I'm in. So he believes, he's baptized, and he comes along with Philip. And the great debate that kind of comes around this story is whether or not this is a genuine conversion. Because for those of you who aren't familiar with what's about to happen, let me just tell you, Simon is about to make a massive mistake and receive a, a really brutal and harsh rebuke for it. And so there are many scholars and interpreters who say, this isn't a real conversion. Um, he's clearly faking it. He doesn't really believe. And then there's other people who say, no, he's really a Christian. He was just a shallow one who needed some instruction. He needed you know, to be corrected, but he's a Christian. And the debate goes back and forth. And, you know, there's good arguments on both sides. On the pro side, people who say he is a Christian, everything about this description of conversion sounds genuine. There's nothing in the text to hint that this isn't real. It says he believes. That's the word that's used all over the New Testament to define that kind of real saving belief. He's baptized and he's continuing with Philip. At the same time, people on the other side of the debate say, well, James tells us in James chapter two that even the demons believe. So big deal, you can believe in Jesus and not become a converted true follower. They also like to cite all of those church fathers that I just talked about because the, the early kind of church fathers, especially guys like Irenaeus and Justin Martyr, they say that Simon after this story is gonna go on to become the first heretic who opposes the church. But here's the thing, that's not scripture. We don't know for sure. Um, and the text, frankly, doesn't say, doesn't make it clear. So I want to invite you, as we watch the rest of the story, ask yourself, what does it look like to you? Does this look like someone who is a shallow believer who needs to be kind of mentored in the faith, or does he look like someone who doesn't truly believe? Let's keep going. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem, so remember, we're in Samaria. Now, zoom back to Jerusalem. When the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them. But they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, just as a side note, um, this is not a description of something that is normative, kind of like the sequence of salvation is kind of unusual here. It's not normal throughout the New Testament or Christianity ever since then to think that an apostle needs to lay hands on you to kind of seal the deal. What's happening here is a very historically particular situation where God is doing something really special and unique. He's expanding the church beyond the Jewish world out into the Samaritan world. And so at this moment, there's a great vulnerability for the church because for hundreds of years at this point, the Samaritan world and the Jewish world has been completely separate. They're at odds. They don't get along. They both claim to believe in Yahweh, but they don't work together. And so there's a very real danger at this point that the Christian church could fracture along the same lines. You could have a Samaritan church. You could have a Jerusalem church with nobody getting along and nobody working together. And so God orchestrates this particular timing so that 
there's an apostolic witness to the genuineness of the Samaritan conversion. You're gonna see the same thing happen later when Gentiles become Christians. We're gonna need apostles to come and bear witness and say, no, this is real, this is legit. And God doing it this way is part of the reason why we have this united worldwide global church today. So when you read this story, don't think that this is like, oh man, I never had an apostle lay hands on me. Am I not really a Christian? This is something unique. Now, when Peter and John show up, they come, they're kind of like the big dogs from Jerusalem. They lay their hands the Holy Spirit is imparted on the Samaritans. And when Simon sees that, he reveals what's truly in his heart. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. This isn't particularly surprising, historically speaking. This would have been a normal practice among magicians that if you want, you could pay each other to kind of learn the tricks of the trade or to gain new skills or to get, you know, magical objects and things like that. But it reveals Simon's view of the thing that he's trying to be a part of. He says, hey, I see that you have this special ability to lay your hands on people and impart the Holy Spirit on them. Let me pay you for that privilege. He is drastically misunderstanding what's going on and what the movement of Christianity really is. It's actually interesting. There's a word that we still use to this day that comes from this person and from this story. It's the word simony. And simony is a word that means the buying and selling of any kind of spiritual benefit. So it could be, it was really common during some darker eras of church history, the buying and selling of ecclesiastical positions like church offices and things like that, or spiritual blessings. We call that simony. And it all comes from this guy and this one story. And here's the thing, again, kind of as a side note, you will still horrifically to this day find preachers who will tell you that this is a legitimate way to advance in Christianity or to gain spiritual blessings from God, to pay for them, to purchase them. And I just want to tell you straight up, if you hear that or see it, run the other direction. It's not Christianity. And you don't have to take my word for it. Watch how Peter responds to Simon. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Wow, it's truly hard to imagine a harsher, more direct response. He says, I'm not touching your money. May it perish with you. He just unequivocally says, this is wrong. This is not what we're doing. You have no part in, in any of this. And here's the thing, the harshness and some of the wording of what Peter says, it's hard to imagine that it could be more brutal. And this is one of the arguments that people who think that Simon was never a Christian use, is that some of Peter's language here is just so final. Look at just a few of the kind of key words from what he said. He says, may your silver perish with you. The word that's being translated perish there is the Greek word apolue, and it's, uh, it's harsher than perish is in English. It doesn't just mean destroy, or it doesn't just mean perish, rather. It means destroy, annihilate. This is a word that's often in the New Testament used for final destruction. This is like the end destruction for the rebellious one, for the sinner. So he says, may your silver be destroyed along with you. And he tells him, you have neither part nor lot in this matter. You have nothing to do with what we're doing here. And the reason why is because 
your heart is not right. It's not just that his actions are wrong or that he's kind of done something offensive. It's what his actions reveal about his internal state. Your heart, your, the seed of your motivations, who you are and why you're doing this is out of alignment with what we're doing. So you have no part in it. It's not just what you're saying. It's not just the offer of money. It's what that reveals about your internal state. And if Peter's sentence ended there, I think it'd be a done deal. We'd be like, yep, clearly this guy has no hope. He's going to perish along with his silver. Story's over. But Peter doesn't stop there. He tells him beautifully, in my opinion, repent, repent, pray to the Lord so that that internal thing, the intent of your heart, that thing that's been revealed to be wrong by your actions in order that that might be forgiven you. Peter doesn't tell him, hey, may your silver perish with you, depart from me, there's no hope for you, get away, I never wanna see you again and if you show up in Samaria, I'm gonna chop your ear off, right? He doesn't, there's nothing like that from Peter. Peter says, repent. In other words, whether this guy is a lapsed Christian or he's never been a Christian, the pathway forward is the same either way. He tells him, repent. The way of forgiveness lies open. The path of life lies open before you. You can still be right with God. There's a way forward. And Simon responds, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. And this is just like, every bit as frustratingly ambiguous as everything else about Simon in this story, it's not clear from this answer how he's responding. It, the text does not say that he fell to his knees, repented, and prayed to God himself, which is what Peter told him to do. All it says is that he asks Peter and John, you pray for me. And so there are some interpreters who take a really strong negative view and say, this is sarcastic. He's, he's saying, why don't you guys go ahead and pray for me? I'm good. I personally think that's a little bit strong, um, but it's not clear at all that he's repentant either. He says, pray for me. He asks them to. It could just be that he's full of fear. He's been so humbled that he doesn't feel worthy of approaching God, or he's still kind of misunderstanding the power dynamics at work because of his magical background, and he wants the kind of super Christians to intercede for him. Again, it's not clear. You wish that Luke would say, and then later he repented and everything was fine. Or maybe say it the other way, but we don't know. Here's the good news, though. Either way, whether Simon repents and comes into saving faith or whether Irenaeus and Justin Martyr are right and he becomes the first heretic, either way, the right path forward for him is the same and the lesson for us as modern Christians is the same. Peter said, you have revealed something fundamentally wrong in your approach to God and what you need to do is repent. Change your mind, change your direction, reevaluate and come to God with a completely different posture in order that the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. See, Simon reveals something that I think is really common among Christians and non-Christians who are coming to Jesus initially. And that is that Simon was more concerned with what Jesus could do than who Jesus is. He didn't want to humble himself under the power of the great God. He still wanted to be someone who was called the great power of God. And so he saw the miracles which were meant to point to Jesus. And instead of looking past where they pointed, he got fixated on the miracle itself. John Piper uses a metaphor for this that I love because I have a toddler. Um, and those of you who have toddlers or have had toddlers will understand what I'm talking about. Piper says, this is like 
when you point at something beautiful that you want your toddler to see, and then you look at them and find them looking at your hand instead of looking at the thing you're pointing at. Have you ever experienced that with your own children or with a niece or nephew or something? I love to go hiking with my daughter. Her favorite thing to see on hiking trails is bunnies. Around where we live, there's these little brown bush bunnies that run around. And every time I see one, I'll say, Ellie, look, there's a bunny right there. And the worst thing that can happen is when I look back at her in the backpack and I see that she's just staring at my hand. And I want to be like, Ellie, no, it's not this. It's what this is pointing at. Simon looks at the miracles performed by the followers of Jesus, which are always and explicitly in the New Testament meant to point to Jesus, and he gets fixated on the hand instead of the thing it's pointing at. And the same thing happens to us all the time. For some of us and for many Christians in the world today, it's actually the exact same problem Simon has. Many of my brothers in the developing world, especially in some of the African countries that I've been to and that we work in, talk about how obsession with miracles, just like Simon, becomes the biggest thing ever. You'll have blocks lined with churches that are all about miracle working. For some of you, you might come from a background where that's something you still struggle with. In the Western world, it's not nearly as common. And for us, we are more likely to catch ourselves just desiring the things that we want Jesus to do for us. We come to him in prayer as if it's, it's a magical relationship that we have with him and we can do or say certain things to get outcomes that we want. And we're just, we're after that hand instead of the thing that the hand is supposed to point at. So ask yourself, do you make demands of God and then evaluate his goodness or his love for you based on whether or not he meets them in precisely the way that you want him to meet them? Because I have to tell you, if you do, if you struggle with that, that's not the gospel. It's not Christianity. It's magic. And the good news, beautiful news, is that the gospel is not magic. Magic says, if I perform this certain thing, if I say this a certain way, if I have the right object on or around my house, then I can get God to give me what I want. I can get him to do what I need him to do for me. It's about actions in this world that manipulate God into meeting our needs. In the gospel, you will not find rituals, you will not find incantations, you will not find magical objects. What you will find is a God who has already done something. That's why it's the gospel, the good news. You don't find ritual, you don't find magic spells, you find news. News of something that already happened for you 2,000 years ago. News that God has already, in Jesus Christ, done everything that is necessary to meet your greatest need, to take care of your biggest problem, to bring you into right relationship with him. And not only is there no ritual or ceremony associated with that, when God did that, the Bible says he wasn't looking down at a world full of people who were doing all of the right kind of stuff to please him, to make him happy, to make him do the kind of things they wanted him to do. God looked down at a world full of people like you and I, who are shaking our fist at him in rebellion. And at that moment, he said, I'll die for them. So you and me, while we were enemies of God, he did what was necessary to save us, to make us right. The gospel's not magic. The gospel is news. And all there is for you and I to do is recognize who that victorious king is, bow to him, and let his victory become your victory. And then you get to just watch your life slowly change out of that, not into that. And so I want to ask you just kind of as we 
wrap this up. In the midst of this pandemic, in the midst of whatever kind of anxiety or fear you are feeling, how will you come to him? How will you come to God? Will you come with that little percentage of of magic that makes you want to just pray and demand certain things of God, demand healing, demand protection, demand that this whole thing can get resolved in time for whatever big event you have coming up? Or will you run to him and cling to him as the God who loves you, as the God who has already done everything necessary to save you? Will you bring those fears and anxieties? Because yes, of course, we should pray for the things that we hope for, but we should pray with humility and trust in a good God, not with demands and manipulation, just looking to evaluate his goodness and love based on whether he does exactly the thing you want. No, God has already done the greatest thing you needed. And so his love for you was demonstrated 2,000 years ago. It's a done deal. So I want to invite you during this time, come to him as a loving, victorious king who cares for you and already proved it. And know that the gospel doesn't demand any ritual, any magical action or a magical item, just, just humble submission to the good king who loves you. And so we're going to finish today, and we're going to actually finish every sermon for the rest of the shelter in place this way, by coming to God in the specific way that Jesus told us to, with the prayer that Jesus told us to pray, the Lord's Prayer. And this is a prayer that begins by addressing God in his infinite goodness and power, by putting our perspective where it belongs on his kingdom and his will, and then asking him for the things we need. So wherever you are with your family, whether it's Sunday afternoon or Monday morning, whenever you're watching this, I encourage you, stand up together and let's all say this along with me. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen.